Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And this is Thursday, November 10th. 2016, the first show after Election Day, and I cannot resist commenting. Every time politicians ignore large parts of the population, they are headed for a surprise and eventual defeat. Trump's victory is structurally the same as Nixon's silent majority. A bunch of people who were ignored, and who had had enough. All the people who lost their homes, their jobs, their lifestyle, and their health, or even their life, have been mad as hell for going on 10 years now, and people in government have been ignoring them. They're basically saying that These people don't count. And oh, by the way, we want you all to use all your discretionary income to buy stuff at our stores. It doesn't work that way. And while it takes a while for the populace to rise up, when they do, watch out. The depth of the anger was well known. But the elite and the pollsters failed to understand how wide in scope this anger was felt. They failed to understand it because they failed to look. They failed to listen. I've been writing about it for 10 years, saying that politicians are going to pay for this if they don't do anything for the common, everyday person, the worker, the farmer, etc. They simply have accepted the premise that those are people who don't matter. And I think that the election no matter what you think of Trump or Clinton or whatever, showed that the people are mad enough to say we do matter. Today the world has woken up to the fact that it that is obvious for all to see around the world, as virtually all of Western society is caught up in a fierce backlash against the common tacit understanding amongst all government and agencies. As a result, I think they're all headed for political extinction, and in some parts of the world where things don't work in peaceful transition, worse than that. It turns out that people do understand when they've been screwed, and they are willing to lash out in unpredictable ways until somebody hears them. 
There is only so much that they will endure, as Thomas Jefferson specifically said in the Declaration of Independence. Nobody knows for sure what Trump will do as the next president of the United States. But I am sure that he knows that he needs to feed that beast or it will devour him too. Tonight, Charles Marshall joins me as co-host of the show. Bill Patolo, that's P-A-A-T-O-L-O, spelled Patolo, not Patello, which is what I've been saying for two years. Um, <laughs> Bill... Bill is our guest. Charles joins me as co-host. Bill, as a private investigator, drills down about as deep or deeper than anybody I know, and he keeps finding more of the same. Lies, fraud, irreconcilable numbers taken from multiple IT platforms that are hidden from view and where the numbers are created out of whole cloth. It is now becoming apparent because of, of Bill's work and others who follow him that we have new categories of loan modification fraud, of servicing fraud, in addition to foreclosure fraud. I keep promising you all that we're coming out with a short mini-seminar on objections, which most lawyers don't like to make because they're afraid of getting the judge irritated. Uh, we are working on it. I'm not satisfied with it yet. That's why we have not come out with it yet. I'm using uh, my last trial uh, in August in Orlando as a model. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202 Three four five, which is our main new number, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value to you, if the blog has value for you, if the form, the free forms and resources on the blog has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. I keep inviting Charles Marshall back, and he's co-hosting tonight uh, because. This is a guy who plans and cares about the result, not just whether he can justify his fees. And what we have seen with Charles and a few other lawyers in the country is that persistence pays off. Charles is an attorney with offices in San Diego and operates throughout California. He practices in all four federal California uh, districts, and he's been lead attorney in appeals before the Ninth Circuit and six California state appellate districts. He can be reached at 619-807-2628. Bill Padlow is a private investigator who has now devoted most of his attention to digging up the truth 
in connection with the creation of mortgages, the so-called claims of creditors, the so-called modifications, which I think is just pure theft from whoever the money is really due to, um, and servicing fraud where all kinds of numbers are worked into modifications and foreclosures that don't belong there. Welcome back, Charles Marshall, and welcome back, Bill Patello. Thanks, thanks for having me back. The yeah. I just did it again. Patello, <laughs> yeah. not Patello. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. It's a I pleasure to, to have... be back. Thanks, thanks for having me. <laughs> Okay, I apologize. I don't know what makes me keep doing that. Let me set the stage here. <laughs> Nearly everyone accepts the numbers put out by servicers, even when those numbers are dead wrong. Hardly anyone checks the numbers to see if the, if the right to reinstate has been accurately stated. I had a case, my last case in, in Orlando. Uh, no, I'm sorry, in Fort Lauderdale I had a case where the um, the notice of default and the right to reinstate was using numbers for the monthly payments that didn't exist. There was no way to reconcile it. And then I started looking at other cases, and I find that in a significant number of cases, I'm not ready to say it's a majority, but in a significant number of cases, the numbers they use that are required for reinstatement are wrong. So now people like Bill Pamelo, got it right, are drilling down deeper, and Bill's like a bulldog. Once he gets into this, he just doesn't stop until he hits the truth. And he's seeing that in modification, that's another subterfuge that the banks and services are using to hornswoggle the homeowner and the attorney. And even the end-of-month statements, uh, the numbers are wrong and based upon false premises or misleading representations. I think the reason for this, in part, is the fact that there are concealed multiple IT platforms, each devoted to a different purposes. It's like the French bookkeeping system where they had one set of books for themselves, one for their partner, and one for the government. And that's basically what I think is being done, and it's being done out of LPS in Jacksonville, which is now known as Black Knight. And I just listened to an appeal where the uh, attorney accidentally said to the appellate court an oral argument that he represented Black Knight. I think almost all of these foreclosures are emanating from documents and numbers generated by Black Knight, formerly known as LPS, or formerly known as Lender Processing Systems or Services. And the, the intent here is to drive the homeowner nuts and to sidestep lawyers who are not accountants. We need to get accountants involved in this process. And in doing that, 
I think we will have much more success in discovery as well as at trial because only an accountant with direct education, training, and experience in auditing can tell the court why these documents that they've supplied are insufficient or irrelevant to a true representation of what the numbers are. So, um, Bill, let's take, well, before we, we get into the details, you heard me introduce your topics here. Anything that you would like to add as a general overview? Well, I I think there's a lot of information to cover uh, that, that we could probably do about two or three shows on this subject. Uh, so uh, I, I think what's really uh, important here, and I think you touched upon it, is that I think there's, and you think and believe, and as we all do, that there's multiple sets of reporting going on with these loans and the numbers uh, behind the scenes. And typically, in any type of foreclosure situation, the homeowner, the only set of accounting that's provided to the homeowner is a regurgitation of their uh, alleged payment history. And, and essentially, they, they basically take the position that's all you need to know. <laughs> and go, go back and lay by your dish and uh, don't ask any more questions. Well, this fact pattern that, uh, you know, you posted this article on this Michigan case uh, that I'm currently involved in, uh, I, I clearly don't don't believe that this is an isolated incident, obviously, because over the last uh, few years, as I'm starting to look at cases more and more, uh, as I build up my database of cases throughout the United States, uh, the, this, this fact pattern is becoming crystal clear, uh, that these servicers, and in this particular case, it's NationStar, and I've got an awful lot of Nation Star cases spread out all throughout the United States with this same exact fact pattern, um, is that when I pull the internal data, which, which most of the people out there don't have access to, um, they come to me and I pull this data, and I'm looking at these modification files that uh, accompany the internal remittance reports to the investors. And the very first question I ask most of these clients is, uh, okay, tell me about the modification that you entered into and, and when you entered into it. And that's usually where a giant surprise comes up or they're, you know, they say, wait a minute, modification? I've never had a modification. I never even applied for a modification. Or uh, I tried for a modification and it was denied and all the, you know, all the typical horror stories that come along with modifications. Well, uh, What's really clear and evident, especially in this case that I'm posting right here, is, and that's very alarming and disturbing, is that in the midst of foreclosure and just prior to the sheriff's sale of this property, uh, they reported that they had done a capitalization modification. Of course, the homeowner had no knowledge of anything. But they were also reporting that this loan was current to the investor. I need you to stop there and and define the capitalization well capitalization is is typically uh taking a certain amount of money and deferring it to the back end of the loan uh where they're altering the 
the terms or the the balance if there's um, you know in a traditional modification if uh, let's say the homeowner is um, currently behind ten thousand dollars worth of payments over a set number or period of time a lot of times they'll negotiate deferring that to the back end of the of the loan and uh, maybe changing the interest rate or doing some of that but it's usually a deferral of the of the funds to the back end of the loan but it's still uh, a an alteration to the terms that's agreed upon by the uh, lender and the borrower and it's a lot of times handled and supposed to be handled by the servicers and so they're 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 tinkering with the numbers and adjusting the numbers uh, which usually results in a you know a different principal and interest payment um, pre-mod and post-mod so uh, typically the goal of a modification is to lower payments so there's going to be an adjustment and a change there in the payments and so on and so forth so um, but here in this particular case uh, that, I, that I wrote about is that uh, they were reporting to the investors that this loan was current um, and, and that's obviously very alarming because and I think I'll go into maybe a couple of questions that we'll address uh, in a few minutes here but one of the most common questions that judges still to this day seem to be asking or pushing back in the courtrooms is, I don't see anybody else here today trying to enforce this this note. How come there's no one else here trying to collect? Okay, And my response to that it really ties into much of the advance payments that, they are, that are being made by the master servicers and people behind the scenes, because if those payments... Uh, if, let's say the loan was sold to, to multiple parties uh, in a hypothecation scheme or pledged to multiple trusts, and if they keep making payments to the investors, as I see routinely, there are these potential other parties who have rights in that note or mortgage and security instrument, they have no reason to cry foul, and there's no red flag to go up to, to grab their attention to have them come in and speak up. So the it's same the meddling... Principle. Yeah. That's the same principle as a Ponzi scheme. As long as you keep paying, the victims don't realize that they're the victim of anything. Well, I mean, that's that's exactly it, and that's exactly what I, I, I can see going on here is that – and I try to explain that to the judges uh, and whatnot to say, listen, uh, this is – the common issue with a lot of these securitizations is that – that not only is the paperwork uh, non-existent to, to show any part, you know specific party that owns these certificates, but oftentimes uh, the advance payments were agreed to in the in the contracts, whether it's the pooling and servicing agreement and all the contracts that they entered into with these third parties, that they would continue to make the payments regardless of whether the homeowner stops. And so when those payments continue to be made, again, to one or two or multiple potential investors, again, uh, they have no knowledge of that there's even a foreclosure action probably taking place in that courtroom. And, uh, and so it's very dangerous to take that position and force a judgment down somebody's throat and say, well, you better start paying somebody. And I don't see anybody else standing here today, uh, so you better start paying because – uh, if you've been monitoring the, the news wires, I mean, just in the last couple of weeks, we've had stories of people who have been foreclosed on, who have never missed payments. Uh, just egregious stuff is continuing to this day. And it's uh, so that attitude of, well, you owe somebody, 
uh, I think that's a little bit of what the California Supreme Court addressed in the Ivanova decision is that, look, people don't owe a debt to the world at large, right? They owe it to a, a particular party, and it's up to that party to step forth and, and prove that, you know, that they own these debts. But there's a lot of tinkering going on here with these modifications, and 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 you now know, it's becoming yeah. The the uh, uh, it's not just that the investors don't know that the the case is going on; they think that they have contracted away their right to even inquire because those are the provisions in the prospectus and the pooling and servicing agreement. What they don't know is that they're not bound by that because their money never went into the trust. It was diverted into the pocket of the underwriter. And that takes a level of sophistication uh, uh, from a regulator standpoint that is beyond what they're trained to do, and it's a level of sophistication that's counterintuitive and therefore opposite to what even the homeowner or the homeowner's attorney would know, and obviously opposite to what the judge is thinking. He's The judge is right to ask the question, but the way that the question is being asked, in my opinion, is assumes that somehow or other this party that's foreclosing must be the right party because there's nobody else present. Charles, you have a comment on that? Um, absolutely, Neil. I mean, it's it's very typical in these types of cases. You know, whether they're non-judicial foreclosure or judicial foreclosure, and and just parenthetically, you know, when I'm when I'm done, um, you know, addressing your point, Neil, uh, maybe Bill could speak to how the cases he's seen, you know, to what extent they play out in the non-judicial foreclosure arena, to what extent they play out in the judicial foreclosure arena. But back to your point, you know, we, we allege all the time in California that there's no real party to pay here. We literally don't know who owns the note, who has control of the deed. There's no proper presentation from any of the defendants, the servicers and otherwise, as to who has either even nominal ownership of these fundamental instruments, particularly in California, the note and the deed. And so it becomes, you know, kind of this backdrop yet fundamental issue it's out there in, in, in terms of all the negotiating and litigating that goes on. And unfortunately, in the non-judicial foreclosure cases, you know, in California, as my experience, as, as the radio listeners know, uh, you know, the defendants are, all, are, are all, all too often able to finesse the issue of that ownership and who really is standing in a position to enforce the note and the deed. And yet, that fundamental issue is elated in, in, in way too many cases. I mean, um, Bill, is that is that your experience, not of the non-judicial or the judicial foreclosure cases that you handle, and also, you know, the mix of cases that you have? Would you say you're more on the judicial foreclosure side or kind of on both? Uh, 
I, I'm kind of on both, but you know what's what's interesting about a lot of these accounting records in the non-judicial setting is, uh, for example, I just I got a case in Southern California where, uh, again, it's a it's a modification of having been reported. They claim they did $154,000 principal forgiveness and lots of real funky stuff to, of which the homeowner uh, has no idea about, but. They, the servicer came back to this borrower and told him that he needed to wire transfer $150,000 to the servicer in order to stave off the foreclosure sale that was going to occur in the, uh, the following, I think it was about five days later. So uh, unlike most, this client actually was able to wire the $150,000, but lo and behold, uh, the sale still went off, okay? Well, when I come in and I start looking post-sale at a lot of these cases, and I look at the trustees' deeds that are being recorded and everything else, I'm seeing that these payments are still being made as though the loan is performing, and it's still in decline, and it's being paid to the investors month after month, even years after the loans had been allegedly liquidated and sold. And and so... What does that you know? What does that tell you or tell me? I mean, it's like okay, this this is telling me that they're that this loan never actually uh, went through the process of. I mean, they obviously foreclosed and, and took this home and liquidated it, but the liquidation proceeds from the sale never got applied to the account, never got applied to the investors. Uh, so this thing might be sitting somewhere else, and it tells me that there's – it's a classic example that this thing was sold in multiple directions. But, uh, but I see long after the sales that this stuff continues to get paid on, and that's, that's a big red flag right there when you talk about Ponzi schemes. Yeah, they're still, they're still keeping the uh, so-called investors in the dark – and the investors think that there's nothing wrong with the loan portfolio, and they don't even know that half or all of the loan portfolio is gone. Uh, yeah, and if, and if yeah, and you look at that, you know, that white paper that I kind of reference in the article that talks about, you know, servicing fraud on the financial institutions. Well, a lot of it again correlates to borrowers as well. But one of the one of the classic examples is. These servicers selling loans that they don't own, and they're not forwarding the liquidation funds or any of the proceeds of the sale to the actual investors. Instead, they just keep making these modest payments and and uh, keep it going like that. You know, again, Ponzi scheme. And Bill, that uh, that white paper you reference, that's from the Federal Financial Institutions Examination Council, right? That that's correct. Yes. That's a mouthful. Uh, F-F-I-E-C. Yeah, if you could speak to that uh, in more detail, the radio audience, I think, would be interested in that. Well, yeah, and I mean, they, there's a couple of uh, bullet points in there where they talk about some of the symptoms and signs to look for regarding, you know, foreclosure uh, or servicing fraud. And I think when you go through the, the bullet point list, I can probably come up with multiple examples of what I'm seeing on the uh, homeowner borrower foreclosure front that that fits right into these categories um, of of servicing fraud. So again, the fraud goes both ways, and we've been saying this, and I know Neil, you've been telling this for years that you couldn't have pulled off the scheme without you know 
committing fraud on both ends to the investors and having the borrowers sign on the dotted line to take out the loans. And so uh, clearly there's a lot of investor lawsuits and they continue to this day, but uh, it's the middlemen who are, who are, who are doing this. And, and, you know, going back to this Michigan case, what's really concerning is that, look, they're, if, if, they're claiming that this homeowner is in default and they're going to take this house, but they're not telling the investors that this loan is in default. They're telling the investors it's current. So there is a disconnect between the borrower's ability to actually speak to the investor to make an actual workout uh, of this potential loan, because guess what? Nation stars standing in the way and meddling and committing fraud and lying to the investors and lying to the borrower because they have their own interests in heart, right? They have their own fraudulent scheme to play out. So there's no, there was no possibility, it appears in this case anyway, that, that, that there could have been a modification or a workout because the two meetings, uh, the two parties uh, would never be able to meet. And the, the thing I would add to that. <clears throat> is if the investors haven't lost any money yet, how do you claim that there is a default? Well, I think the answer answer is self-evident. There is no default. And what what is happening here is that these servicers are using the investors' own money, just like any Ponzi scheme, to pay them and keep them quiet while they are, while the servicer is claiming a default and the servicer is pushing through a foreclosure. I have seen in virtually every case, the attorney says that he represents the servicer and you usually have to press a few buttons to get him to even admit that he represents the trust or whoever the party that is represented as owning this uh, uh, is involved. And I had one case uh, involving Aquin, uh, eventually won that case, um, where we went to mediation. And actually, we went three times, but that's another story. We went to mediation, we sit down, the attorney sits down there, and there's a disembodied voice on the phone saying he represents Aquin. And the mediator, of course, asked us to announce our appearances, which I did, and I said my name, and I represent the, uh, uh, the defendants, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and the attorney on the other side said, my name is whatever it is, and I represent Aquin. Now, not wanting to be, not wanting to have driven an hour to a mediation for absolutely nothing, I prompted her to say, you mean you represent Aquin and U.S. Bank, right? And she said, no, I represent Aquin. I said, are you sure that you don't represent U.S. Bank as trustee for this so-called trust? No. I represent Aquin. 
at which point I terminated the mediation, and that started a chain of motions for sanctions, et cetera. But if you really drill down, and I'm not sure the procedure, I know I've been practicing law for 40 years, I should know it maybe, but it seems to me that there is no actual retainer agreement, orally or in writing, between the attorneys who are pursuing foreclosure and the so-called owner of the debt, whether it's another bank or a lender or trust or whatever. And I have seen this when I press the point time and time again. They get all confused and stammering about who they actually represent. And when you call the law firm and ask them about something with the case, he'll say, I've got to consult with my client. And when I say, who's that? He'll say Aquin or SPS or Bayview or whoever the servicer is supposedly uh, acting as servicer. So I'm putting out there the idea that one of the things we really ought to do that may be fundamental is try to dig down and find out whether or not these lawyers who say that they are doing a foreclosure are in fact doing that rather than actually representing the interest of the servicer who has no claim against the borrower, even if the homeowner is a borrower. The servicer is trying to collect the money that you've described, Bill, as advances, which were really from the investor's own money, and therefore the servicer is not entitled to it. But if they get a foreclosure, if they get that sale, that's the first legal document in the long chain of fraudulent documents. And then when they liquidate the property, the servicer makes a claim to recover, quote-unquote, servicer advances, and they get it. And that's one of the reasons that they've let these cases go eight, ten years. Because as long as the property was worth it, they could take more and more money out of the pool that they have of investor money, pay it to the investors, and then claim it all back with interest as though they had paid it. And this fact is obviously not easy for most people to comprehend because most people don't have the training of a private investigator or, like me, an accountant and lawyer, an investment banker. I get it. I could see it at a glance. But uh, for the average person, all this is very counterintuitive. It makes no sense to a judge who is an average person to think that the actual creditor has been paid and that they're in here anyway trying to conceal their claim for the recovery of servicer advances under cover 
of what appears to be a foreclosure action, and they're converting their claim from an unsecured claim, which can't be filed against the investors pursuant to the pooling and servicing agreement and can't be enforced against a borrower because the borrower doesn't owe the servicer any money. Comments, either of you? Uh, Neil, yeah, I have found that in California, consistent with what you're saying, and I think this is true from my experience throughout the non-judicial foreclosure states of the West, I even suspect it's true in the judicial foreclosure cases, and I think uh, both you and Bill could speak to that part. But what I'm addressing is that when you're in bankruptcy court and when you have cases out of your own with, with me. Fortunately, that's rarely, but I do get them sometimes, and they're, they're often referred to me. I'm talking about unlawful detainer matters. And in those cases, invariably, these kind of uh, absent parties who are nowhere in the pleadings, who have stayed hidden, you know, sometimes for years, all of a sudden will, in, will appear in bankruptcy court for a motion for relief from stay or they will appear as an unlawful detainer plaintiff after the sale of the subject property. And the servicer has kept them hidden. And in many cases, the documentation has kept them hidden. Um, typically, they're somewhere uh, in the pleadings, and they're, and they're still uh, cited on my side, on the plaintiff's side in California, as a defendant. But even where they aren't, even when they've stayed hidden, they show up at these hearings. Because these hearings, meaning the bankruptcy hearings and the unlawful detainer hearings, they have an absolute requirement that you demonstrate ownership uh, of the note and the, uh, the controlling deed related to the subject property. So all of a sudden, the servicers who, who were handling everything before, they just fall into the background and the nominal, the nominal note holder who rarely can produce, you know, a true proper uh, document showing ownership of the uh, of either the note or the deed. Uh, rarely can they produce those, and then when they do produce them, uh, in a lot of cases, uh, they can be challenged as fraudulent. So I've I've seen exactly what you're talking about, Neil. And Bill, before we run out of time here, and I definitely want you to come back maybe next week if you can uh, so that we can get further into this. But before we uh, finish, I'd like you to give me your, or give the audience the uh, uh, your take on the significance of the federal judge that compelled NationStar to produce the accounting records. Well, I think it's real uh, significant for, for many reasons, obviously. Um, the information is very specific what what this judge is ordering them to produce and when that information comes in and i i, I hope it does um it should overlap consistently with the data that i'm reviewing and seeing because the data sources where i get my information is coming from the exact same parties uh so if there's going to be any alterations or uh, manipulations of that data clearly that's going to stand out as number one but Number two, going back full circle to a little bit of your political comments at the beginning, um, I've got a, a case here in Montana with NationStar who did a false modification, and my client uh, 
filed a formal complaint with the attorney general's office. And the AG followed through and, and contacted Nation Star and said, hey, you know, I explain what's going on here. This person saying that uh, there was a capital modification, capitalization mod that occurred, and, and uh, there's no knowledge of this by the bar. Hello? I'm here, Neil. This is Charles. I think we lost Bill. Yes, we did. <clears throat> well, it's unfortunate. I'm sure that uh, he will be able to take this up uh, next week. And, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I do have to say, co-hosting the show, that he's provided a lot of good information and a lot of intel. And he's got yeah. similar information and intel on Chase as well, by the way, not just NationStar. I know that, and he's got information on, on uh, dozens of services and banks and trusts, and he's done a really remarkable job of revealing and developing the facts that uh, that lawyers and homeowners need in order to make their point. And uh, as, as long as I have just a few a, a moment here, let me. Uh, I think I wrote about this a few days ago. Let me make clear that just because you're able to come up in court with a discrepancy, it doesn't mean that the judge is going to rule for you. When you present information, number one, it has to be admitted in evidence according to a ruling by the the judge, but just because meaning it's presented in the, in the proper legal form, exactly. Yeah, just because it's admitted in evidence doesn't mean you've won the case. Evidence is just evidence; it's flat, like a piece of paper. How much weight the trier of fact gives to that is up to the trier of fact. So you point out this, that, and the other thing, and you don't tie them together in a persuasive way that tells a story that the judge can understand, then don't assume that the judge is going to fill in the blanks. That's not what judges are for. And in, in reality, if you look at appellate decisions, you will see multiple times where appellate courts have admonished trial judges for filling in the blanks. They're not supposed to do that. So what's important, and I think part of the importance of Bill Patelow's work, I almost did it again, um, is that you need to present something in a persuasive way. What is persuasive? Persuasive is clear. Persuasive means the order of facts presented leads the listener to the conclusion that you want that listener to reach. The narrative, Neil, the narrative. Everybody talks about the narrative and every professional and personal walk of life, and that's absolutely what is needed here as well. Well, I think uh, uh, we've covered about as much as we can. Uh, 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 
Bill Padalo can be reached at 406-328-4075. And, of course, I gave you the numbers for Charles Marshall at uh, 619-807-2628. And I recommend that you get in touch with them. Charles, thank you, Bill, for being on. We'll see you back next week. Absolutely, Neil. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.